This is basic civil defense information from the Department of Defense, Office of Civil Defense, Washington. If the United States should be attacked with nuclear weapons, it's almost certain that our networks of warning stations would detect incoming bombers or missiles in time for you to reach shelter or at least take cover. You may receive warning of an attack by radio, television, or through the outdoor warning system in your community. It's important that you learn to recognize the attack warning signal and not confuse it with any other. In most places, the standard attack warning signal is a three to five minute wavering sound or a series of short blasts on whistles, horns, or other devices. Either of these signals means that an actual enemy attack has been detected and you should take protective action immediately. Find out from your local civil defense office the attack warning system that will be used in your community. <laughs> and then and then remember and then you said to the girl you said that's my chopper baby that's my chopper what's a, what's a, she was like what is a chopper it's a it's a it's a chopper baby what's a chopper um that is probably my least favorite tarantino movie around now but it's the most quoted me and you for for pulp fiction. 20 years we've quoted pulp fiction at nauseam and uh it's funny that we were always like, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, I think of all the different things we'd say in that movie. Comes a time, butch. Uh, clutch cargo. Dang, 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 think you're going to find. Think you're going to find. Think you're going to find. All oh, shit's done it over with. Think you're going to find yourself one smiling motherfucker. Going to go medieval on your ass. <laughs> so, but anyway, this is not about Pulp Fiction, and this is not about Quentin Tarantino. No, we already did that. Yes. We didn't do Pulp Fiction, no. but we talked about Pulp Fiction. Yeah, in, in Reservoir Dogs. In our Reservoir Dogs. Podcast. Which was this year. Was. It seems it's so long ago to think like we kicked in 2017 with um, Escape from New York, and that seems like a thousand centuries yeah, ago. Yeah. It's weird because it does seem long ago, but at the same time, because we only do two episodes a month. Oh, yeah, it's only like... It's only like a couple episodes. Yeah. <laughs> but then there's ones that just fall through the cracks. Like, I completely forget. Like, you know, since we had a bunch of big ones recently, I forget all the... There's sometimes a lull where you forget what, you know... I couldn't tell you what we did in March or whatever. March. March. I don't know. March Madness. No. We, did some, we did a lot of good ones. We might have done, like... Slapshot. Oh, yeah, you're right. We, we that might have been Yeah, March. that was the end of the winter. Yeah. yeah, you're right. That was a great one. Uh, we, did I, a lot of fun. we did a lot of great movies this year. Yeah, we did. Uh, great, great movies. We have a little retrospective. Yeah. <laughs> little, and then we have a big asterisk. A lot of the movies were 1987, but, you know, a lot of good movies maybe came out. Maybe in January, we'll be, maybe we'll do a New Year's where we look we back. Sum up. We look back on 2017. It's the, it's the episode where Blake breaks his leg, and he's in the hospital, and I come in to, with the flowers, and then, like, you remember that time? <laughs> and then we just have, like, all the old clips of other episodes. Oh, God, that would be an editing nightmare. Yeah, trying to find. Yep, that means we have to sort <laughs> through. Go through all the episodes. Yeah. And then you're like, I want you to log and transcribe everything. <laughs> like, oh, God. I need to do a paper cut, Deanna, so we're going to need a transcription of every episode. Yeah. That's what you're supposed to do when you do like a doc. When you get an interview, you're supposed to, rec when you record the interview, the first thing they tell you to do is just transcribe that so you'll know, you'll have, you know what you have. And that's, ooh, that's a. Well, That's when I bitch. did the book, I had to transcribe all those interviews. Yeah. That, I'm the worst typer ever. Yeah. I got just my little 
I got like I use my four <laughs> my four fingers and my thumb. Yeah, it's like little nanny mob Jack and Curly. <laughs> uh, and then you tried to even go to a transcription service, and that sucked. I did for one of the uh, one of the interviews. Yeah, yeah, one of the last interviews because I was running out of time and I was too busy trying to transcribe another interview and. They got it all wrong. Yeah, it was more uh, headache than it was worth. Right? <laughs> yeah, I had to go through and transcribe <laughs> the thing anyway. Because they, they and were... I don't think I ever paid them for it. Oh, good. They got assy with you, right? Because then I was like, well, this all shit's wrong. And then they said, well, go through and we'll read it again. They'll go through it again. And they'll be like, no. And I said, what you transcribe no. itself doesn't even make sense. And then they, were, then they have the gall to say, well, that's what they said. You're like, no, no I was there. I said, no. So I transcribed what they said there. And I said, no, this is what they say. And they're like, well... I said, like, fuck you, I'm not paying you. Yeah, fuck you, pay me. You've made, this, you've made more work for me than if I had to just transcribe it myself. Why would I pay you yeah. for this? Then they got assy with you, too, didn't they? They're like, you're going to yeah. pay us. But that's, that's for another day. Uh, yeah, yeah. So this is week two. No, this is week three. three. See, I'm getting my weeks all mixed up. This is week three of our Halloween extravaganza. Uh, we did... Um, Saturday night movie sleepovers, October month of horrors. Of Halloween extravaganza. <laughs> the longest title for a series ever. Yeah, we're going to put all that in the Twitter before. That's 160 <laughs> characters. And then we don't even tell people what we're doing. We do one of one. <laughs> yeah, one of one, two of two, three of three. Of two. Please read them all and like them all. Um, so we started off with the gate. Und gate. Und gate. And then last week we did, uh, it was a big surprise for Friday the 13th. We did Friday the 13th part six, Jason Lives. Very controversial for all those Friday the 13th thurs out there. Part seis. <laughs> part undici, dodici, tredici, quattodici. I'm trying to think in Japanese what it is. Part whatever. And then now we're on week three. We're doing, we're doing the retro. Um, we, have a, we have a really loose formula when it comes to Halloween that we both try to employ. And we don't know. I'd be interested to see if, if um, listeners uh, have noticed it appreciate it, not in any kind of, we're saying that in, a, in like a, a pretentious sense, or if uh, they even like it, where one of the things is, uh, what I like to do for Halloween, as you know, is do an old movie, uh-huh. and what you like to do for Halloween is we like to try to have a movie, the last one of the month be Halloween, take place around the holiday. Yeah, yeah, like how slightly Halloween themed, yeah. or take place on holiday. Hence, on like Halloween. every Halloween movie with Mike Michael Myers. Uh, that that's like or, or well, the um, first year trick we did tree, Halloween you know? three, season of the witch. Yes, which took place the the, the climax of that movie takes place on Halloween, and it's also like the most Halloween holiday esque movie of that series, yes. in my opinion, because it's all about the Halloween masks, the masks and yeah, children. Yeah, yeah. And Shamrock, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the second year, which was the first year we did the month of horror, yes, we did Halloween 2. Halloween 2, which took place, I guess, the same night as Halloween, because yeah. it was later on that night. So later it, on technically, that, it's like one in the morning. Thing. Yeah. Uh, and then last year, we did... Uh, What's the Scarecrow movie? Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. With, uh, Charles which, Durning. Which TV has movie. one scene that's questionably taking place yeah. on Halloween. There's like a little costume party. Yeah, on Halloween night. Which is like the creepiest thing. Creepy. The girl's all dressed up. Like, yeah, like as one of those um, <laughs> beauty queen. She looks like one of those beauty queens. She's all dolled up. And uh, Charles Durning's like... He's like, hey, Auntie K, girl. I'm Charles Durning. <laughs> Come on over here. I'm Doc Harper. <laughs> 
I, hey, we still got to give props to that movie. That movie was great. I love that oh, movie. Oh, I do too. I'm so glad we did that. Yeah, last it's so year. exciting. It was so much fun. Yeah, and I love that. And that's a whole subgenre, which we got into those, those TV movies. They're so fun. Yeah, there's movies. so many more to do. Tons of forgotten 70s and 80s Especially TV like in movie the, the week. suspense. That's category. what I mean. Yeah. So many good ones. I mean, there are other great ones. Like, I love. The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, yeah. John Travolta. I mean, that's not horror suspense. Yeah, Brian's song might so, even be... Uh, so there's other there's ones outside the horror suspense uh, thriller yeah. genre. You know what I just found was, and unfortunately, uh, I f- the, the guy's name's escaping me, but there was a, uh, a gentleman who listens to the show sent me a year or two ago uh, a DVD of Trapped. Trapped, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I just found the copy and I was like, oh shit, I gotta yeah. watch it. One I got a copy of Perdita. <laughs> no, because that was it was pretty stupid of me because when I went when we went to the Monster Palooza, Monster Mania yeah. in March, that was one of the lot I bought with like Oh, you uh, bought it? <clears throat> yeah. I shouldn't have. Yeah. But I was kind of pressured to make five. And that's where I got like uh the uh uh, what's you, the, know. you know, the Charles Heston, Indiana Jones movie, and I got um, uh, Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, and I got some other ones to get five, and then uh, that I was like, uh, and I'll take this one, and I shouldn't have took that, because mm-hmm. you had it, and I realized afterward, I was like, oh, it's probably going to be the exact same copy you have. Yeah. James Brolin stuck in a, a department store overnight with some Dovermans. <laughs> this is like, sounds, sounds like the greatest scary. premise ever. Yeah. And I'm, I'm worried that even though it's a TV movie, they killed like four Dovermans to make it, the movie. It's like the horror version of... Uh, career opportunities. <laughs> yeah, you know, that would people forget that was before security systems. They would just have dogs uh, in uh, department stores, you know. So uh, that's funny. I wonder if they still do that. There's all that subgenre of stuff that they don't do anymore. But anyway, uh, so this year we're uh, we're here today. This is Saturday night movie sleepovers week three. That's Jay Blake. That's me. And that's Dion Baya. That's him. Me. And uh, we're here this week again. <sighs> we're back. Um, we're doing what I like to refer to when we do the old episodes because that's the ones we've been doing kind of fit this category for me as like the creature feature yeah. sleepover episode. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a late night, midnight showing on the like some creature feature. Yeah, on... remember TNT used to have Monster Vision. Yeah, but they would. You know? sh- they very rarely showed anything this this old. Even this when they old. got that late. No, that was the Joe Bob Briggs show. Oh, that was Monster Vision. Oh, duh. Yeah. Okay, I'm thinking that there was another one. Uh, I'm a little fried tonight. But you know, like uh, here and I know in Chicago, and so if it's originated in Chicago, place here, so it must be syndicated more play- places. But like the Sven Gulli. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You always back in the day, you had your regional guy. Yeah. And he used to do all the creature features. And then, yeah, you're right. Sphinguli now is, is syndicated across the country, maybe even the world. <laughs> and everyone knows who Sphinguli is. And they have, they have some great, great movies they play. And what I like about Sphinguli is he doesn't mock the movies. You know? I mean, he'll, he'll poke fun at them. Yeah, yeah. And he'll do a lot of... I mean, and a lot of research goes into that. I mean, you think he'll have all facts about the movie, and then, you know, and they have to do a lot of clever ed- editing and stuff. And then, you know, there's a bit where he'll say a line and then they'll cut right back to the movie. So the movie will answer the line he says cleverly. But then a lot of times he'll have his friend come and they do like a whole song near the end. And that's like pretty, they're coming up with a song a week, you know, for some old, you know, and the songs are pretty clever. Like, you know, he's, you know. I kind of wish we could do one of those. What, with Sfinguli? Yeah. Like, not necessarily host it, but like maybe, you know, create it, right? Make that. 
going. You recently, Dion recently met a friend of mine who's uh, an older gentleman named Frank. Oh, yeah, good old Frank. Who a friend of ours who we went to college with, Aaron and I know this guy, Frank, and Aaron and I, who we affectionately, we refer to Aaron as Meatball. Yeah, <laughs> meatball. I call him double-A batteries, you call him Meatball. Meatball stuck. We, uh, we have this dream that we'll do like a horror-hosted show where Frank is the host. Oh, he's like the coming out of the crypt kind of a thing? <laughs> he has that look. He has a very much like a... Um, he would just be hilarious. He, ha- he, he would be the funniest horror host ever. You put him like in a cape. Yeah, he looks very much like Al Lewis. You can get him to do like a, you know, uh, how are you there? You know. But he so uh, would like be, so he would be like the reluctant one. So that would be, what, you would need like a co-host because Frank would be, so he would he, do it for me if I asked him yeah. to do it, but he would kind of be reluctant. So it would just be hilarious. Angry and bitter. It's like, isn't Christopher Lee doing that in Gremlins too? He's like the horror host. No, it's not. It's Christopher Lee plays a scientist in the movie. There's somebody, isn't, I think there's somebody in the movie that's like the reluctant horror host, which I forget now. Uh, you know, oh, that might be the guy from, he plays a horror host in something. But he's the guy that plays Darnell and Christine, and um, he might be the theater owner in Last Action Hero. Okay, yeah, that guy. Yeah, that two, might be him dressed up like like Dracula. Dracula or, or Lewis. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So anyway, I, I feel like if, <laughs> that's a lost genre. Those guys, you know, because people don't really look seek them out anymore. <clears throat> Excuse me. The. Uh, you know, the, the creature, the late I night. I feel like places have them still. I never was, I wasn't fortunate enough to grow up in a region that had one. Yeah. Um, but I feel like there might be, there's one in Pittsburgh. There's, there's Fengouli, Chicago. Yeah. So, I mean, there's. When I was in Cleveland uh, last year, they had some local, two local guys. And I don't remember their names, but it was so, that was like the best part of going to Cleveland because I went there for work. But to be, you know, it's turn the channels one late night in the hotel room and then you come on to their local show and these guys have been on for 40 years and what I caught was them doing a retrospective of all the different spoofs they've done so it was like they did like in the 80s you'd see them doing like Raiders of the Lost Ark or this and it's like wow they've been really going for 40 years and it's (laughs) this really tall guy and it's I wouldn't say the person's like a dwarf but he's another shorter guy so that was their gimmick a tall guy and a short guy so anybody from the Ohio Cleveland area um, why don't you tweet us or, or give us a shout out with those people, with those guys' names, because they're legendary in that uh, um, area or market. And uh, it's very much like that. Them do, they would do all kinds of spoofs and stuff. And it was really clever for like, you know, 80s and 90s stuff on cheap home video or VHS. So the first year a that year. we did the horror extravaganza, yeah. we did a movie that's near and dear to both Dion and my hearts. Uh, Mad Love with Peter Lorre. This was when we went to, f- we, went, we upped the ante and we did four a week. We actually did five. We did five because then we That's did a special. We did, we did the Silver Bullet. Yeah. First unofficial guest over with, my, with our buddy Dave. Yeah. Uh, Who we bring up a lot this year, especially. And, uh, and so we did, yeah, so we did Mad Love that first year, which was a, a great Peter Lorre um, horror, sci-fi, really weird, quirky movie. Yeah, yeah. And then last year, we did A Favorite of Yours. Um, what did we do last the year? The Hammer Mummy. Yeah, The Mummy. Film. Yeah, that was really good with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee from like 57 or 58. And this year, we're exploring, uh, staying in the 50s, but we're exploring a different kind of subgenre of horror, the sci-fi horror, which uh, Dion 
alluded to in the gate. Yes. That you went through a little phase when you were younger where you were really into these kinds of movies. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. So, uh, tell us all about it. <laughs> well, put your legs up. Well, when Dion was young. <laughs> when Dion was a very young boy, so let's see. Let's, let's, let's. I mean, I'll admit that I like a, a bunch of these movies and I've seen a number of them, but uh, I, I, would, I never went through like a specific. Yeah. Like phase where like I was watching them a lot at one period of time. Um so uh horror in general, I've always liked growing up. Um I think my first um experience or exposure to horror was maybe Michael Jackson's thriller. Sure. You know, and then that got me. I knew who Vincent Price was from that, and then the, very soon after that, I saw Last Man on Earth, his Richard Matheson adaptation from 1964, scared the shit out of me. And then uh, American Werewolf in London, I saw that really fucked up scene where the Nazi zombies kill the whole family. Yeah, and then yeah. I had like That's you know traumatized. Yeah, we, for, yeah. And then <laughs> he told me that. First day we met. <laughs> no, it was yeah. the first day. <laughs> when we were sleeping in bed, lights went out. I was like, You're like you know that scene from the... You know that scene? <laughs> so do you think you can open the curtains and make sure there's nobody there? You know, the, the, it's weird to put that in perspective. You know, we celebrated our 20th anniversary as, as friends. Yes. Uh, in, in August. Yes. But it is interesting to think that because we were roommates, the first day we met was also our first sleepover. <laughs> I don't remember what we did that day. Uh, specifically, because I do have very fond memories of right around that time. Um, I remember shaking your hand when we first met, because you were already in the room, and then and it's all blur. Right? And after that, yeah, and after that, and, and after that, I don't really remember what happened. Then we bonded, talking about like the people we met that day. Remember Jeremy mm-hmm. and some other people we met uh, the, on the floor, and it was really funny because Blake and I had said before we were paired together in a suite of eight people, and we were. Yeah, in the we were roommates in one room, and then the room was a suite of eight people. Yeah, yeah. So there was next to our room was another ba- another bedroom, and then directly across from us in the suite were two more bedrooms, and then we shared a bathroom, a common bathroom, and then we had like and a, the, and we had like area. a little common area that had like a couch. Yeah. So what happened was like when everyone got situated, maybe that day or the next day, I remember like the hall, the RA was like, everyone, let's have a. Let's go outside and have like a, a a floor meeting so you can meet everybody on the floor, you know. So we go out, and um, I remember the RA had everybody like you know sound off what they're here for and what they're doing. And you had like three people: Jeremy, remember Derek, that was our roommate. They're like, "Yeah, we didn't get into the film program, but we're trying to." So we figured we'd come here anyway and try to get in. And then they went to us and were like, "We're in the film program." That <laughs> <laughs> was really bad. I was like, you know, yeah. Um, but anyway, so getting back, so. Uh, American Werewolf in London scared the shit out of me, especially like when you think it's over and then the woman's like, let me open this window, the nurse, and she gets freaking stabbed. It's like, so uh, when I moved out of my house uh, in 86 to the suburbs, uh, so that was the Halloween of 86, uh, I went, we went out trick-or-treating. And this is a story that I probably have to tell on another podcast eventually. Came home from trick-or-treating. I was a pirate that year. My dad was watching the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So I sat down and watched it with him. That was the first time I'd ever seen it. Scared the shit out of me, the as you do. Remake. The 78 remake. Scared the poops out of me, which kind of has a correlation to them tonight. We can talk about later. And then uh, right around that time, Invaders from Mars, the remake, the Toby Hooper remake, had just been in the theaters and was coming to video. So like within a month or so, 
uh, it was on uh, the movie channel. So I started watching that at nauseum. And then my father was like, I, I forget, because I haven't seen that since then. But my dad's like, you see the cop in this? He's the kid in the original movie. Um, so we went and found the original movie. And we watched the original. And then he's like, if you're going to like this, you'll love War of the Worlds. And he was a big War of the Worlds fan yeah, yeah. from growing up. Because he, he, I remember him telling me, like, you know, when he saw that as a kid in the theater, and he said he was crying at the end of the movie when those the saucers are going through the city, like shooting things. And he was like, he thought it was the end of the world, you know, yeah, in the fifties. Yeah. So that kind of got me on this, like, uh, you know, that era of, um, uh, you know, uh, aliens from outer space. Sure. And then I learned shortly after that about Ray Harryhausen. So I saw like his, um, what is it? Earth versus flying saucers, which is around the same time. And maybe I saw, um, day the earth stood still, but I definitely saw Thing from Another World, the original invasion of, of the Body Snatchers with um, Kevin McCarthy. Um, I saw this, them, and there's a bunch of others. So, and then at the same time, I was being exposed to, like, Dennis the Menace was in syndication on television. So, like, you know, I'm watching Dennis. So, like, I had kind of like a pseudo-50s kind of upbringing for that sure, year or two. Yeah. Because, and then right around that time, there was, like, whoever the local WPIX monster guy was, he did a marathon of... Universal horror movies. So I put it, I think my parents knew, so they gave me a videotape and I taped that night the entire run. Yeah. So I had like 12 movies or I don't know how many, 10 movies of that night and they were all like in order. So then bang, I knew, you know, Frankenstein, Bride, Dracula, Wolfman. Um, I think The Mummy played and then maybe like Frankenstein versus The Werewolf. That was probably the... the uh, the schedule so you know at very young I, w I was into them and then that kind of we were off to the races so i always had an affinity for the especially invaders from mars how freaky which i think you particularly brought up as a a trope or a theme in some of these movies where it's the child knows the truth yeah yeah at the beginning of invaders from mars people haven't <clears throat> seen either version of it it's like the kid over his his house overlooks a hill he hears something at night, looks out his window, and he sees like a UFO land on the other side of the hill, and there's like a fence going over. So he like wakes his dad up, or his dad hears it too. His dad goes to check, goes out of frame, goes out of the screen, comes back, and then his dad's different. And then you know, and the kid knows that his, that his dad's taken over. And then soon after, you see his 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 dad's like, I'm gonna show mom something, and he's and then you see mom being taken over with the dad, and the kid's like, oh, and the yeah, mom yeah. comes back, and she's different. So that always got like the paranoia that for me that was like, holy shit, my parents are gonna be, yeah, you know. As, and it's a gorgeous movie to watch. I mean, that's which the, one? The original. Oh, that's that was one of the reasons why I'd always say. I mean, it's aesthetically it's, really interesting. Yeah, because it's done at, like as almost like the a guy Tim Burtony. And the guy that directed it was formerly like a big production designer. Yeah. So it's got a. It's got. It's, just a, go, it's just a gorgeous, visu visually gorgeous. Yeah. Because what they do is they take the angle since it, the kid is the uh, center character in the movie that you're you're with. They do it all from a child's perspective, almost like of a nightmare. So everything is kind of like skewed. Maybe not the house, but every other set, like when they yeah. go to the police station, is all whacked out, like larger than it's supposed. Almost like the universal existential horror castles and stuff. When you'd see, like you yeah, know, someone yeah. lives in this huge. So it's yeah, and and, and it's color too, and the color is gorgeous. It's that fifties color, you know. So uh, I had yeah, I, I had a fascination with that very quickly. So it's funny that. Uh, to psychoanalyze me right around that time, I saw the uh, the opening of Amityville Horror, and the guy kills his family at the beginning. <laughs> so like I had this like dueling uh, when I was little of like zombies coming to kill me, 
my dad killing my family or like, you know, uh, z- zombie Nazis coming to kill me in the house, you know, yeah, while we're yeah. watching TV or like aliens coming down, you know? And, uh, that was right around the time too that my dad's like, if you like War of the Worlds, there, you know, this guy Orson Welles did a radio play and he explained that to me. So we went to the library and we found the old, you know, 33s. So I was, I had my Fisher Place record player up like by the pool, where, you know, on the deck, and I, 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 and then that when I was little, like I'd play it loud and I'd make it sound like I, people are gonna think I'm listening to the radio. So I was like <laughs> looking to see if the neighbors are hearing like that, like this, you know, aliens are landing. So it's you know when you're like eight or nine. So like. Uh, that was my first foray, foray into this kind of Your a... Ken foray? My Ken foray <laughs> into this kind of uh, subgenre here. So I always like, since I grew up with a foot firmly in the older movies in general, but then early horror, um, and then I've always had an affinity for the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I saw The Thing, the remake at a very young age. Mm-hmm. I always had a uh, affinity for them too, and then the movies that they came out of, which is... Like, you know, this kind of 50s horror, fear from above or fear of yeah, the yeah. Uh, unknown and that kind of a thing. And I find it so fascinating because it's it's the next evolution in, uh, which we've talked about, uh, of horror. We're getting away from the monsters in the woods, you know, from the early 20th century with like, uh, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula yeah, and stuff like, like gothic. that. Yeah, gothic. Yeah, once that kind of so. plays out pre-war and then you get into the war and you have some horror movies during the war like Wolfman is the early 40s. But horror dies off, and then in the late '40s, you have what Avon Costello come out, and they do Frankenstein. You know, they, yeah, that might that, have been like that. Might have been really early '50s too. The Avon Costello it, meet Frankenstein. That might have been like '50 '51. And that was so popular because the allure at the time was like all the kids were like, well, "We're going to go see a movie where they're all in it." So it's kind of like us now going to see like the Avengers movie, where you're going to see all your favorite superheroes in one movie. That was you know you love these two comedians, yeah, and yeah. then these two comedians are going to, meet, going to you're going to see every scary and monster. And they had a whole string of those throughout the 50s. Yeah. Them, they Not just the mummy. horror ones, but they had, like, uh, they go to Mars. Oh, so that, that's so <laughs> They go to Mars, but what they actually Which do is... is playing off of that, that stuff. Yeah, know, the this, this kind of fear. They get into a rocket, they go up, and they come down, and they, they think they're on Mars, but they land in Mardi Gras, New Orleans. So they get out, and they have these fucking astronauts, a- a- and the people have all these crazy masks on, and they think, oh, it's so funny. But, uh, yeah, so it was in the psyche then, and then they, there was a big jump start of this in the 50s, as we've talked about, I think, in other casts with the syndication of television, but it greenlit the interest of making new movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon and uh, other movies that compete. Hammer blossomed. Uh, with this and then as well as you get into the 50s you get into this they have this sci-fi yeah. heavy aspect and that fascinates me the horror horror meeting sci-fi there you know and that <clears throat> a lot kind of, of that fun. stems from what's going on in the world so 45 World War II ends uh, 45, 46 and then the Cold War begins in like 47, 47. and that lasts until 1990 so you have this and that's something to think about People nowadays may mock it, but, uh, you know, how people used to act back then. But back in living in the 50s and in the 60s, I mean, through the whole thing, but especially that time, there was a thought that the inevitability would be that we would have a nuclear holocaust, that we would su- it was inevitable that they would, at some point, the aggressions would get so tight that we would launch against each other. So that was always like a fear of... And it almost happened. And it almost happened. Yeah, yeah, the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was 13 days. I mean, uh, <clears throat> if you watch that Fog of War documentary about... Uh, what's his face? McNamara. He talks about, like, there were communiques between um, Khrushchev and, like, Kennedy. 
And it was literally like if Kennedy didn't say the right thing back in the next communique, they were going to launch. And luckily, yeah. they, they were both men that were able to realize this, get above the partisan politics of their countries and realize we shouldn't do this. Yeah, well, also, you know, like, on a side note, like, this is also a time, I mean, we don't know how dangerously close we were. Because this was also a time period where Kennedy was, like, had that doctor who was, he was on all these kind of crazy drugs that made yeah. him really aggressive. Dr. Feelgood and stuff, yeah, that was, and that's the kind of thing where you see one thing. So, so, like, he also was kind of, like, he was on a lot of drugs that could have made him react I mean, he was like mm-hmm. almost like on speed or meth because he was he was he had back problems, so they're giving him painkillers, and then he needed to perform and sleep. It was like that. You see those concoctions with a lot of the old child stars, like Natalie Wood and um, what's her face, uh, Judy Garland. But that's an example at the 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 yeah. presidential debate between him and Nixon. That you know that it was the first televised presidential debate where if you listen to it on the radio you thought Richard Nixon won the debate but if yeah. you watch TV Nixon had no makeup on he was sweating because I think he had a cold and then Kennedy had just been shot up from his doctor with whatever he was so he yeah. was feeling great he looked he put makeup on he's a young guy but also it also had something to do with like the medication he was on or like this one of the sicknesses he had like made him look t- like kind of tan. Oh, okay. So, so he also, looked, he so also he, looked brown. <laughs> like on the black and white, he looked like a really nice. But then you also see like when he, uh, like his inauguration, it's on a cold day. Everybody's all bundled up and like all this steam coming out of people's mouth. But he's like in a suit because also like the me- medications here on has like his metabolism going so fast so he's that, bald. that he's not even yeah. hot. I mean, or he's not cold. even cold. Yeah, yeah. Like he's just hot. So he's like, he's wearing like regular, <laughs> just like a suit jacket. Everybody else is all bundled yeah. up with scarves and hats. And That's why he had that ferocious sexual appetite. Too, and so, uh, so yeah, but he was, was really stuff, and a lot of that medication he was on, like reportedly, made him very. Uh, some medications like he was on make you willing to take chances that you normally wouldn't yeah. take. And he was on all that stuff at the time, and he also had the back problems, the neck problems. And they say that had he not had like his back brace on in Dallas, um, like he may have survived yeah you know because like the first shot he would have went down but because he had the back brace on he kept him sitting up and then he got killed in this you know yeah of course so uh but uh so the cold war was a fucking crazy time and it's hard for us to put it in perspective like to really understand like the impact of it today looking back on it because i mean we grew up at the tail end of it but we were also kids at the tail end of it so we yeah. knew that like it became a jockey went to rush yeah it was like it became <laughs> we like knew a... that like you know from red dawn like communism communists yeah. could they could, could land they could, they could invade in and take over a town they're coming but, over in higgins boats and just landing on the beach but yeah it was very um, much war a... i mean those the, the war, war games yeah matthew brought like there was a lot it was still and i would love to really examine and figure out like what was going on in the 80s that brought all this stuff back to the surface in media because there were so many like anti-communist well yeah i think because you got reagan got elected in 80 and reagan was starchly against it and then with gorbachev in, he started you know talking about in speeches this is wrong you know like you know the iconic speech by the berlin wall uh, mr gorbachev tear this wall down and you know and he is credited by the end of the 80s by kind of taking out the uh the what is it the unified soviet 
uh, states of Russia, maybe that's what USSR means, you know. So, um, but in the fifties and sixties, yeah, there was all this fear. People were putting in bomb shelters. Yeah, you know, they had the you know stop and duck and cover. Yeah, the, you have the turtle, you have the old turtles. Um, they, you know, they used to they used to like when you were in elementary school, you'd have to watch. Uh, like, you know, they'd show you things in class, like, what would happen if a bomb went off? You know, get under your desk and hide and cover your eyes. Don't look at the light. You know, and that was the thing. And so it's weird. You get out of post-war, we have all this economic boom where you have, like, the suburbia and this prosperity into the 50s. So that is the the dichotomy of it or the, you know, the, the, you have all this, like, the Eisenhower 50s. It's like suburbia. People like it. Idyllic. But then the other end of it, you, the, and this is what comes into the sci-fi fear, you, the fear that it's going to be taken away from you, or it, or that is going that comfort that post-war uh, comfortability you have in suburbia in America is going to be somehow invaded sure. by either aliens or uh, the the atomic age. I mean, this is also an age where people are kind of science and scientists are kind of the um, uh, they're untrustworthy, you know. Always in these movies, you don't trust the scientists. I mean, yeah. this movie, them, you trust our scientists, Edmund Gwynn. Yeah, but at the same time, you, you trust the scientists. But basically, you know, for World War II, we created the atom bomb. Yeah, the Manhattan Project, and uh, and then in the Cold War, Russia decided they wanted one, yeah. so they created one and, and did their first testings in '49. Yeah. And then we were, and then we were like, "Oh yeah!" We'll and then in the '51, we tested the hydrogen bomb, yeah. which was even more powerful. And here's the thing: when you, th- you know, when you look back on it and you try to put yourself in the mindset, even today, like splitting the atom, like what does that mean? Yeah, this is like radiation. I mean, it's happening on like on microscopic <laughs> levels, you know? So part of the fear that happens, that's happening in the, these 50 movies, these fifties movies. Sure. You have the red scare and the, and the fear of the, uh, the commu- paranoia, the paranoia and communism. And that's where we get invasion of the body snatchers and, and, uh, invaders from Mars and stuff. And then you have, uh, a lot of this alien stuff comes from that fear. But then on the on the other on the other end of the spectrum of these fifty sci fi movies, there's this very real fear of what the atomic bomb and also like the introduction of nuclear energy. Yeah, is and what it's going to do to the like world. nobody really knows. Like we can't. It's not something that we can see. It's not tangible. We don't know what it's going to do. Yeah, and we don't know what the side effects are going to be. Like I remember even like. Uh, when everybody was getting that LASIK surgery. Yeah. And I was like, told my mom, I was like, maybe I should get it so I don't have to wear glasses. And she's like, it's so new. Like, wait 10 years. Because who knows what the hell. <laughs> yeah. People that could, in 10 years, people could be blind. I mean, if you, uh, when I was in Vegas again last year, when I was traveling for work, I had a day off and I went to the, um, they had the bomb, the bomb museum they have there in Vegas. You can go look at the history of them testing the bombs out there. And uh, you go look at all this stuff in there, and they have you know fragments, and I'm sure everyone's seen the movies where like you have the dummies, and they blow the thing up, and you you know they try to see what happened to the dummies, yeah, yeah. and they I mean then they'd even have live animals out there. They'd put pigs because pigs are similar to our body structure. They put them in pens, and let's see what happens to them, and then there'd be nothing left. But then a lot of times you see this footage where they would just have as soon as the bomb went off, they'd have like uh, infantrymen get out of the trenches and they'd, okay, just start walking in. 
And no one knew, like you're saying, no one knew the effects. So no one knew that all these, uh, I wouldn't say gamma rays, but all this radiation. Yeah, yeah. So like all those, there, well, there's even like... say, I don't know what year it was, but John Wade made that Rasputin movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, in, in, the, in the desert. And they shot it. Like. Right, where they, yeah, and then supposedly everybody died of cancer <laughs> off that movie. Like everybody that worked on that movie died of cancer. Because they were, they were at the area where they, were, they had been testing stuff. And uh, I mean, they've even started like funds for people whose family were, you know, still, you know, who had unintentionally been exposed to radiation. So you have a lot of the, like the, in the 50s, we're looking like inward, and it's almost like the interferes of civilization, and we're worried about, like, you know, it's, it's, it's also like almost like an anti-intellectual time, too, where there's like, we, we have all this new technology, which we're not afraid of yet, but the people who wield a new technology a lot of times in these movies are people like us. They're the good guys. Like, you know, they're the ones that, you know, take control and they're, yeah. they use the technology to ultimately say def- defeat whatever the uh, aggression or aggressor is in these movies. But like you're saying, there, there was a lot of fear of just either alien imposters taking over, you know, and becoming your neighbor or your family members and, yeah. and you don't know who to trust in this kind of thing. And that, you know, what the, well, that was like the big thing with the McCarthy and the, and the, uh, you know, for some reason, so, and then socialism. I mean, for at the me, time. I mean, at least for me, it seems completely bonkers, crazy to, to have this fear that communism was going to spread like a plague. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, even into the United States. Um, but there was that fear, you know, and it was like, is your neighbor a communist? You know, and there was like, well, there, it was a fear that, that people they were somehow, getting blacklisted. Yeah, from, they would. Capitalism would be taken down, and then this kind of socialism would be would 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 come into effect here, and that it became like you know uh, in the Cold War, it became the two models: what can succeed, socialism or capitalism, and that was. It's also crazy. I mean, not to get all into this stuff, but like the 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 thing is, like communism, and on paper, seems like a totally great. Fucking thing. The problem is human nature can't share. No, and it and it, um, and it ends up bankrupting. But it's just, it just it seems so crazy to me, like the the amount of fear that went into like the that this was gonna yeah really be like a huge problem. Um, and it's another thing because we're so far removed from it, you, you know? know. And also, we had a fear. You look at the uh, the forties, and we just brought this up in some of the thing. Uh, we were talking about people being scared. Oh, maybe with Karate Kid in the internment camps when they did that over here. You had, especially in the New York area, you had a big fear of during the war of saboteurs or spies entering into New York City, which actually happened. You had U-boats land off the coast of Long Island and people had gotten out uh, like off Montauk and stuff. Or you had a ship in, in, what is that, Shadow of a Doubt, the Hitchcock movie? A saboteur. A saboteur, yeah. Where uh, right on the West Side Highway, a ship capsized, and they, and they thought for years that was sabotage. So you have these, and it wasn't, it turned out, but at the time, it was playing into all these fears that, like, um, you know, there, there are going to be people that you're seeing, sadly, today, these, these uh, homegrown terrorism. You'd have these people come over, and somehow in, the, in, in Grand Central, there was a there was a top secret thing in the basement. There was a uh, big generator that made power uh, for the to, for the electric trains in Grand Central that supplied the entire train lines south and north of Grand Central. There was a fear if somebody got down there and these were turbines, if they threw like sand in the turbines yeah. and wrecked these things, that would literally uh, grind to a halt the yeah. actual eastern seaboard of troop transportation. All these kind of and we'd be paralyzed. So. 
you have that real fear in the 40s. And then that, mm-hmm. on a side note, is why they ended up having uh, night watchmen on the West Side Highway to watch out for this. And then that job was never abolished. Hence come the 60s where you have those two guys, the salt and pepper team, shaking down uh, homosexuals over there. And that becomes what cruising is based on, yeah. you know, because they never abolished that job, you know? Yeah. And, and of course... Rocketeer. Rocketeer, you had you fear had that Neville Sinclair. Yeah, with some movie actor, some picture actor. And then there was another thing, too. Yeah, in, in the 40s, you had people who were pre-war, I guess, late 30s. You had Charles Lindbergh. You had um, uh, uh, Henry Ford. You had, you know, all these pro... Not You had the Bund Party, B-U-N-D, uh, here with Hitler Youth Camps. That was a real thing in, in, in the... So you thought you they were very much worried about nazi sympathizers when the war, when we went to war and that's why for right or for wrong they then had these internment camps so post war that is still the mindset where you know this is going to we're going to have some person here who is who are sympathetic to, to the Russia or socialism, and they're going to somehow, uh, you know, by means of intellectually or physically, uh, hamper or somehow take down our society, yeah. you know, but telling secrets or whatever. And I don't really know what, like you're saying, we're so far removed, what the fear on the day-to-day level was. Okay, if, you're, if your neighbor next door was a communist, it's not like he's, it's not like the time of World War II where they're like on a ham radio sending out, you know, Z nine. You know, it's not like so. I don't know what the day to day worry was of, of of the communism in the fifties that you said with the Red Scare and McCarthyism. Uh, so, but it was there, and it and it and then it translated into these science fiction movies of the fifties, where you have either these big monster movies where it's a reaction of us using these. Uh, this technology that was completely science fiction yeah, yeah. 15 years before. Yeah. And now we're so far ahead. I mean, post, I think, what is it? Maybe post-World War II, you know, that was after the Industrial Revolution until World War II and then post-World War II, there's so many developments in technology with computers and all that kind of stuff. All that Roswell bullshit. Yeah, man. you know, all, yeah, it's all that, all, it's all the aliens coming down. <laughs> Back, you know, just going, what is it called? Uh, 1947, the Roswell, New Mexico incident. I know, when you're like taking the, taking the technology and, and, and bring it into the, and, uh, and, and working backwards and see how it works. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, oh, D, uh, yeah, yeah, D, what are you calling it? Yeah. So you had that worry. And then that comes out in the 50s uh, in the horror industry so and then even the horror movies change of the um you know you have the the guys are like creature from the black lagoon you have like the monsters are almost hybrids of uh of almost like a i mean creature from the black lagoon isn't like uh anything related to like atomic energy or nuclear energy but you have that kind of uh a fear of you know those the monsters end up start emulating that kind of a thing but then certainly in the 50s with the uh with the sci-fi mixing with horror, you have a lot of the aliens coming down. You know, you have a lot of those <laughs> yeah. invaders. Well, you know, it was just like, you know, look, I mean, Red Dawn in the 80s, that could have been an alien invasion movie. Yeah. But instead, you know, they wanted to place it kind it's of in a, in a more, like, realistic, realistic uh, scenario. But that's the, you know, look, that's the... Look. It's like the interesting, most interesting thing about the sci-fi genre and in turn the horror genre you know there's this idea of in the 50s you couldn't address and in any era but since we're talking about the 50s specifically like you couldn't address these fears in a more realistic fashion uh 
for an audience. One, an audience maybe couldn't take it. Two, uh, you know, maybe a studio would never make it. So the sci-fi genre has always been like a fantastic place for writers and filmmakers to kind of explore social issues of the day and kind of show us either in cautionary tale or uh, in cautionary tales or just you know show us a mirror yeah put a mirror up to it and say, uh, and and say like show. this like look what's you what you're doing i mean it's interesting <laughs> you know we talked a little bit about it with uh blade runner because we talked a lot about science fiction and but this idea of you know uh exploiting these fears for an american audience through science fiction is classic and has given us some of the great films of all time not just the great science fiction films of all time i mean invasion of the body snatchers is like a masterpiece yeah uh, 56 and then don siegel's version and, and then the 78 version is is of a, a film that's super near and dear to the hearts of, of dion and i and one that we have been talking about doing on the show since we started it but like it's so near and dear to us it's like intimidating yeah or even keeping <laughs> like, it in like our we pocket need, for another day <laughs> like we either keeping it in a pocket or like we need the the perfect time to do it the time when we both have enough time to do the research and uh, we have enough time to sit down and talk about it um and the, it's just uh, it's a fascinating the the, sub, the science fiction genre is fascinating and when you get into uh, when you start mixing in the elements of horror to it and sure we've done the remakes of the thing and the blob and 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 stuff like that but uh, to go back and and now kind of explore like the genuine article of it uh, you know them is a uh, you know, is has now been considered one of the great like science fictions of all yeah. movies of all time. And I mean, Godzilla the next year, uh, or the same year, same year came out a little earlier. But my my delineation, I never really realized, is that Godzilla, the atomic testing in Japan, has just opened a crevice on the ocean floor that releases Godzilla. And I've always had the idea that much like them, it was a product like, like of radiation, yeah, caused Godzilla. But it's just that he had been stuck in something in, in a hibernation kind of from the Jurassic or whatever period. Mm -hmm. And then us just b blowing up these bombs had, uns you know, opened the ocean floor and that's, dun, 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 <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then as opposed to here where it's, and of course we're the direct cause of, yeah, well, of, the, of what's happening still, in this movie. Still, I mean, even if, uh, even if Godzilla's not kind of a result of the radiation, I mean, I mean J Japan had like... It was closest to home. Yeah, than they, anywhere. They had two I mean, bombs you know. dropped on them. <laughs> it's a fucking drop of bombs. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Great book. Uh, anybody want to read? There's a book called Black Rain, which is where the movie by Michael Douglas gets the title from. But it's a very good book about uh, the bomb being dropped and witnesses and and, and uh, you know people having to deal with it in the days and maybe week after it happened. It's very, very good. But that's, it's, and that's what, where, and they, I think maybe even reference it in that movie, which has nothing to do with that. But I think that's, is that really Scott Black Rain, maybe? It might, it's either Ridley or Tony. Yeah, but uh, that's where they get the title from. And they even, I think the Japanese um, partner references the book in the movie. But that's, that's directly about that, if you're interested. But like you're saying, you even get the, in the 50s, you even have a movie um, called um, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, where you have a, a peaceful alien come down 
and try to say to us, hey, you guys are fucking crazy, killing each other, man. You know, you guys, you, you guys need to stop killing each other or we're going to, or this gal- galactic or whatever council are going to yeah, yeah. blow this whole, or, you know, your, your whole planet up. And our first reaction is to like, uh, is to quarantine the, the ship and then we shoot the fucking alien. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, so we don't even know how to deal with properly. Well, that's, you know, that's a common theme in all science fiction to this day, this idea of like, us not being able to deal with aliens or reacting wrong, you know. But that's you know it goes. But that's um, sadly that's we Human can't nature. even we don't even know how to react to people that have a different religious belief than us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. like we can't even figure out how to deal with people that live on the our planet. Yeah, yeah. Let alone yeah, people coming people down, to, coming down from another planet to try to warn us about things. I mean, like you said, there's so many great, you know. Uh, science fiction movies. Um, we, we brought up a couple weeks ago in 1902, A Trip to the Moon, which was George Millais. Yeah, Millais. M- yeah, Millais. And uh, you have like Gollum in 1920. You have Hands of Orlock, which is the original version of... Um, Mad Love. Mad Love in 24. With Conrad Veidt. Conrad Veidt, who uh, this guy here, I'm pointing to me. <laughs> has a, Who's uh, got two <laughs> thumbs and loves Conrad Veidt. This guy right here. <laughs> I got an 8 by 10 that Conrad Veidt wrote to me in 37, like, Tu Dion, Conrad Veidt. Um, you have Metropolis in, in 1926. You get Frankenstein in 1931. You get... Uh, Island of Lost Souls in 1932, which is a adaptation of H.G. Wells' Isle of Dr. Moreau. You get The Invisible Man in 1933. You also get King Kong in 33. Get our movie Mad Love in 35. You get Buck Rogers in 39. Dr. Cyclops, great movie I love in 1940. Mighty Joe Young in 1949. And then when we get into the <coughs> 50s, 51, you get The Day the Earth Stood Still, same year. The Thing from Another World comes out in 51. Donovan's Brain, crazy movie, um, which is, yeah. has a great radio play uh, in 1953. War of the Worlds is also 53. Invasions from Mars is also 53. And then when you get into the 50s, but the even mid-50s, but like even 50, you have Destination Moon. Yes, yes, yeah. Which is like really like the forerunner to 2001. Yeah, I mean it's this idea of a trip to the moon, and that's like the yeah. first uh, that kicks off. Now, that might be 50 or 51. That kicks off this whole kind of a, yeah. and I forget what the last movie but it's is. Like in NASA didn't even really exist yet, but that movie plays like a recruitment video. For, <laughs> yeah, for space, for, you know, for NASA. I mean, the suits and the, I mean, of course, the the spaceship is not anything like the lunar module. I ended up looking. Nobody would have imagined that it was like the tin can, <laughs> you know, wrapped in foil. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, you also have the exploration of science fiction not just the horror of science yeah. fiction going on um 54 we have uh, uh gojia which is godzilla we have Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea we get our movie this week them then 55 this island earth uh quarter mass experiment which is like the first hammer movie and then in 56 i didn't even know they did a version of orwell's 1986 in 56 they do forbidden planet Four, you mean 1984. I said 1986. Yeah, yeah. 1984 and 1956. I'm getting a little confused there. Which there's a Broadway show of 1984 right now. Yes. Uh, you have Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1956. And then 57, Incredible Shrinking Man. 58's The Fly and the Blob. And then 59, you have Journey
when the locomotive becomes big in the early 20th century, we start patter- patterning like almost our look of things off of like Art Deco and speed. So you have like trains, even when the locomotive is stopped, it looks like it's in motion because how it's designed. You have vacuum cleaners looking like locomotives. And then, or rocket packs. Or rocket packs. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, like the Rocketeers rocket pack. Then when you get into the 50s, when going to space and rockets become the thing and satellites, even a vacuum cleaner changes and you have like, a, it's a two-piece where it's like the bottom part, it looks like a little satellite and then you, as opposed to it being like a, yeah, yeah. you know, and you, so it's, it's interesting how you even start seeing uh, the idea of, you know, of what we're fascinated with in culture going and getting its way into like, you know, um, uh, industrial design and stuff we we deal with every day, like you know telephones and stuff, and you know that very a guy Henry Dreyfus who I've brought up before, uh, uh, who, who everyone know uh, we all know his products, but we never heard of him. Uh, he he dealt a lot to this in the '30s, '40s, '50s, and '60s. Uh, it's just fascinating that they all kind of you know blend together, and even like this this movie tonight we're doing. There's so many people in here that have that have bit parts or big parts that it's like six ways from Sunday. There's, 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 or what's that? The nine separations of, uh, what's his face? Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. It's like, there's so many people in this, in this movie tonight that have like, a niche movie movie (laughs) that have, I'm trying to talk like Humphrey Boga, that, that have, um, kind of a, a bearing on what we do uh, and on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. They have like relation to the movies we've covered. Also, I mean, you take into account, like, look, it wasn't, you know, strictly a 50s thing. I mean, the, we've talked a lot about how the filmmakers in the 80s, this was their heyday, and even when we did Grease, we were talking about, like, this nostalgia for the 50s yeah. that was in the late 70s and into the 80s. But also, so it doesn't, so it makes sense that this would be, like, a recurring thing, but... And both either, climaxes of this movie, them, and Grease take place in the same place. They're in those... L.A. gullies, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and, true. It, and it also comes back in Terminator 2, I think, when they yeah, have the yeah. fight through the, you know, those... those. I was just going to say, because we did our little uh, tribute episode to George Romero when he passed away. I mean, Night of the Living Dead is very much in the vein of these kinds of movies. Yeah, because I mean, that's that, that throwaway line. It's an unknown force, but it has to maybe do with this comet and radiation. Does that have anything to do with this, the satellite that came back from Venus and <laughs> crashed? No. you know. Yeah, but it's it's that, but it's also taking that invasion of the body snatchers thing to like the next level of horror. And there's know? a movie in that I have one of those, min, you know those DVD midnight movie packs? It's two movies on one disc. I have one where it's called like Alien Invaders or something, and it's uh, and it's in the fifties. So I'm going to say like maybe mid to late fifties, and it's about aliens coming down and they and they're taking over recently dead bodies, and so it's basically zombies, but they're not technically zombies; they're the aliens getting into the bodies, and then they're you know dun dun you know, yeah, yeah. and it's a great little movie, and uh, it's, it's a great the same little kind of picture, great little picture there, uh, you know, one of those um, you know. Uh, Double bills on like a uh, on a like a, what do you call it like a when you go see a um, drive-in, but it's that much of that that kind of idea of like and it's funny to think ten years or twelve years later when you get uh, Night of the Living Dead. I guess on the outset we always look at Night of the Living Dead as just a straight up horror movie. Yeah, that's rebooting or even starting the uh, the undead zombie ghoul genre. 
that everyone knows and loves today, but it's basically a sci-fi movie. Yeah, you know? it really is. I mean, and like I said, it is. It's taking because of the what what is explained of how they be, the, the the rationalization of how the zombies that were it could were reanimated be, could potentially be radiation that's uh, reanimating the zombies. But it's also taking that idea of uh, the paranoia of invasion of the body snatchers. But, you know, taking it to, like, the, the, yeah. the next level of, like, your neighbor might not be a communist, might not be an alien, but your neighbor wants to eat you. Yeah, or, or <laughs> like your he's family. Been, he's been infected. Or even at the end of the Night of Living Dead, you have, the, your, your, it could be... Your you, daughter. Yeah, your daughter, your husband, your wife who get infected. They're gonna, you're not going to be able to rationalize with them. They're going to turn into this this mindless ghoul that, like you said, only, only wants to eat you. Yeah, yeah. And then you're going to become, you know this mindless ghoul that's going to do the same thing. So I guess that is the progression from the fifties of an alien coming down and taking over a family member or a neighbor. And then they look the same. You could talk to them, but then there's something off about them that you're trying to figure out to the point where 10 years later, it's gotten to the extreme where there's no reasoning with them. There's no talking to them. They look all fucked up. They're all messed (laughs) up. They're all messed up. And they're, uh, you know, they're, they're just trying to go after you Nietzsche. Um, so you have this movie come out in 1954, which, uh, I don't know, I, I love this this movie, and I, I know you do too. Yeah. And uh, it's, at the time also, post-World War II, you had the film noir scene start up. So you have a lot of movies that are very realistic in a sense of like uh, crime pictures, police pictures. You're getting a lot of the procedural stuff, dragnets coming out at this time. You have a lot of great uh Early late forties, early fifties movies like uh, Asphalt Jungle, a lot of those crime pictures, sure. and that was a a, a subgenre like the crime noir. Yeah. You know, where these uh, very realistic police procedural, uh, gun crazy. These movies where you're following, you know, either psychopaths, bank robbers, whatever their motivation is, and the police that are trying to thwart them. And this movie kind of starts off. It is for the bulk of the movie. The first really, 25 like, or 30 minutes. But is, even after they figure out what's going on, it still continues to be like this procedural. Yeah, it's like, very. Where are they going? You know, we need to stop them. But it is very much like it starts as like this, mur- this mystery. Yeah, and it's done very well. And, at the, and, and I heard at the time that um, they didn't want to tell audiences what the twist was, which I, I mean, I find it hard to believe, but they were. And then they said that like. A lot of the so even like the advertisements and stuff because I was going to say you know when we did Predator yeah I was talking about how like I would have loved to have been able to have seen Predator and not which known, is another react not known that there wasn't that it was an alien that's a great another <laughs> movie 80s that's basically a sci-fi you know that fits our criteria today Predator yeah you know so yeah it it, it starts off as one movie and it turns into something markedly different but, but I was when we did that I talked about how, like, how great would it have been to be able to see this movie coming off of things like Commando yeah and, um, and, and not knowing that it was an alien just have like your action. fucking mind rocked yeah f- <laughs> you think it's this 80s action movie with like Chuck Norris or somebody in the Rambo in the woods and then it turns in that it's but an all the advertising alien. pointed to the fact that it was there was something otherworldly about it yeah so my question was like this would be another perfect movie to yeah. be able to go into you think you're going to see like a no that it's about giant ants. Yeah. And be like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> when she's like kneeling over, she, and then that thing's coming. Comes over, like, what? It comes up over like the dune thing. They'd be like, wait, what the hell is this movie about? Babe, have you seen this? You know, and it's and they said like critics tried to who reviewed the movie tried not to give the uh the twist away. So the movie starts off as much very much like, you know, is it a psycho? You know, the psycho that's really into sugar. <laughs> you know? Sugar fiend. Yeah, some, some, and that was another very funny um, 
subplot in the 50s, the escaped lunatic from a mental asylum. Sure, you know, yeah. you get that a lot. Of, well, like, that's you know, when you get like that parody of uh, in uh, Night of the Creeps. Yes, you know, which is the beginning. playing all on everything. That whole the, movie's playing on like a yeah. nostalgia of, of a- f- a 50s alien coming down, and that's the two genres the there. Body you have zombies. you have an alien meeting of uh, uh, an escape mental patient, and then you marry the two together, <laughs> and you get Night of the Creeps. Um, you get the perfect marriage. So this movie starts off, and it's so well done. In one of these procedural movies, where it's like you know, you meet um, what's his face, James uh, Whitmore, who I think audiences now will know that we bring up a lot. Um, uh, what's the name of that darn movie that I forgot just now? Um, Relic. Yeah. He's the old. He's the old man in Relic yeah. that uh, in the he's wheelchair. Also in the Shawshank Redemption. He is. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's the poor guy in the Shawshank that can't really deal with getting out of uh, prison. Prison. And then he's also the guy in the '80s. He did Miracle Girl commercials. He had those crazy eyebrows. You know, he's always that. He he was the spokesman for Miracle Girl, the plant fertilizer. But he still has a great set of eyebrows. In this, in this movie. movie, yeah. He's so it's the he has a predominant forehead, so it emphasizes. It looks like in certain scenes when he's kind of backed away that he has a unibrow. Um, but he's just a state cop, and he, you know, the the it, and it starts off in such a great way. Like to me, like the opening is so like terrifying in this, where you know you have just this this dart, this girl walking. Yeah, it's down. a little girl with like a broken doll, like in walking shock. walking on like a desert, like a road through a desert. Yeah, she's in she's in shock, and they find her, and they can't. She, you know, they, she's not she's in such not like responsive. A, she's really. she's like catatonic. She's able to walk, but she's not responsive. She can't. Be you know they can't communicate with her, so they take her. Her her dolls, the head's broke. It's really freaky, and uh, they're like, "What's you know?" So then they then the airplane that's kind of with them sees there's a trailer down the road, yeah, yeah. so they, they have like an air, like a Cessna like flying around, and uh, maybe they were looking for these. I forget how it starts off. Why you know they see the girl and then the cops, and James Whitmore is one of the state troopers in in I think it's New Mexico, and. Um, they go to the trailer and then they they find like the trailer's been ripped open and the peop- everyone's gone. Yeah, yeah. The, and uh, yeah, like uh, this is and there was there's like maybe a, that's later. But there's money. There there's there's so it's not a robbery. Uh, they there's like the, all the other valuables are there. They find a revolver that's just been fired. So it's like all this like it's one of these whodunits. Yeah. And is it there uh, too where they're like maybe it's a there's some place where they like. Might be later in the movie, but there's also some place like something wasn't breaking into this. They were breaking out of well, it. Yeah, that's they 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 realize that first with the um, with like the uh, air fl- uh, airstream, whatever they're they're tugging the the camper part that it's been ripped out as opposed to ripped in, and then when they're like, okay, we're you know we're gonna call the forensics to check this out. We're gonna get in the car and go to like there's a local like haberdashery, like a little like you yeah. know old man Wilson has like a like a general store, and we're gonna stop off there to use the phone. But at the or same something. time, he finds. A little piece of doll head. Yeah, inside. And he comes in and, and, and he puts it on the. Yeah, it's the, creepy. It's the missing piece. Yeah, and, and, to, and, and to the and, girl doll. And it's also right by. And they, he finds a tattered piece of her clothing, and then he, he, you know, he matches that up to like a rip on her shirt, and he's like, "This is." And they can't communicate with her, so the two cops uh, head back, and then they stop at like a little general store, and the, it, a sandstorm's coming in, so the wind's picking up. It just got dark, and then they, what do they leave the girl? They they, they give the girl to. Um, the, the the paramedics and the paramedic is actually what's his face I don't know if you picked him out from the Patty Duke show yeah, yeah. William um, Shalert Shalhalert I'm, I'm pronouncing his name well, that's completely our, wrong that's our style, that's our style. <laughs> we, we're completely illiterate S C H A L L E R T a lot of cameos in this movie 
So they, she leaves and goes to the hospital. They stop at but this general that, store. There is that instance where they put her in the back of the ambulance, and then, then they hear the noise. Yes, and she... They hear, like, this weird chirping noise in the distance. And like, they're like, what, what the, the hell, hell is that? And, and then, then she kind of, like... She sits up. And she's like, fuck! <laughs> and then as soon as it stops, she goes back into, like, her catatonic state. So they stop off at this general store, and they walk in, and, the like... The back half of the store is ripped open. Nobody's around. Shit's been destroyed. They find like old man Wilson or whatever his name is, like dead in in the uh, in the basement. He's been thrown down there. His skull's crushed. His chest is crushed. He has a broken back. He has, you know. And uh, then they hear the noise again, and then all they notice is the sugar's been raided. So uh, James Whitmore leaves his partner there to, to hold the scene down, and he's going to go and tell the, the you know, make a phone call to get the. The photographers and forensic teams that come and check this place out, and right when he leaves, his partner encounters whatever it is, gets a few rounds off, and that's it. Yeah. So there's you don't know what the hell's going on. And there's like these weird footprints. Yes, that they don't know what the hell. In the sand. Footprints in the sand. And uh, they can't figure out what the hell's going on. And, and James Whitmore really wants to get the girl talking. He's like, you know, she's got to, we got to, she's the key to all this. She'll know what what um, what's going on. And then it becomes like a who done it. And they don't. Is it a, is it a crazy lunatic that's that's doing this? But then, like you said, Whitmore notices at the general store, the haberdashery, that it's also been broken out, as yeah, opposed yeah. to like someone's broken in, so it's been t- torn apart. They bring in this government police officer, yeah, and the FBI, two, and uh, this father daughter scientific team. Yes, uh, you get James Arness, who uh, people will know uh, from the thing from another world. He was the thing in the thing from another world. Mm-hmm. And he went on to being Gunsmoke, and he, uh, Jesus, Gunsmoke was on like twenty years or tw- twenty five years. And that had something to do with that, like uh, John Wayne had seen him in this movie and had recommended and, him to yeah. the producers of Gunsmoke. Which is funny. W- Walt Disney screens this movie to see if James Arness would be good for Davy Crockett. Uh, instead, he sees the scene where we have the uh, the bit pilot in this, played by um, Fess Parker. Fess Parker. And he... Which is only like one scene. Only one scene, but he kind of steals, I guess for for Disney, he steals the show enough to maybe get him an audition. Because he plays a Southerner in in the... Maybe he was Southern in real life. I don't know well enough about him. Uh, Fess Parker. But so Disney becomes interested in him and then he casts him in the 50s as Davy Crockett, which was huge in the 50s with everyone with the the, the hat, the squirrel hat or whatever it is. The coon skin hat. And then... Uh, James Arness, John Wayne sees this movie and he's like, you know, James Arness might be good for Gunsmoke. And then yeah. he gets the job as the Marshal Dillon, I could, maybe. I couldn't help but think, especially when they're in the desert and they're wearing the goggles, yeah. that James Arness looks like the spirit. Oh, he does look a lot like the spirit. Yeah. <laughs> like he's got that kind of suit yeah, on the, and the fedora. Yeah, and he's got like the kind of domino. And he's tall as hell, James Arness, in this movie. When you see him against other people, he's like yeah. he's like eight foot nine or something. Well, like Whitmore would have to wear lifts in his shoes. Yeah, because Whitmore was a was a shorter kind of a guy. So he he wore lifts in the shoes to kind of not look so disparagingly small against Arness. And Arness is also the brother of Peter Graves, who we know from Mission Impossible, probably, and and the airplane movies. Um but in this movie, I saw the similarity. Like a lot of times, like oh, he kind of looks like his brother in this, uh, Peter yeah, Graves. Yeah. And I think Arness is the older brother, and I think Peter Graves was younger, because um, Arness already had a career, and Peter Graves has a bit part in Night of the Hunter in 1955, and then goes on to do other stuff until he gets um, Mission Impossible in the late 60s. So, and then Arness comes, the FBI agent, government agent, and he brings with him Edmund Gwynn and his daughter. And uh, it's funny that Edmund Gwynn is Santa Claus. People know him from Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah. And uh, if anybody has that DVD out there, 
the, the special edition that I have, one of the special features on that is the TV version of uh, Miracle on 34th Street that they did like in 1955. And the little girl that's in this movie, who, who starts the movie off catatonic we're just talking about, she plays the Natalie Wood part the next year in that movie. Huh, interesting. You know, she plays the uh, the little girl who doesn't yeah. believe in Santa Claus and then gets the house at the end. Well, I mean, the casting of... Uh, Edmund Ed- Gwynn. Edmund Gwynn is significant in that audiences knew him as Santa Claus, but he also... He's lovable, likable. People liked him. He's but like it an, also, he was thought of as being as being a, gr- a great actor. So it, it added a little gravitas, a and, little bit of credibility to this crazy movie about China. Yeah, and when you watch the and movie, he's great he, yeah, he, he's, he's, he does a lot of stuff. And he had also worked with Hitchcock. Yeah. He did a silent movie with Hitchcock, and then... Uh, he was in World War One. He has a really esteemed history. At this point, he's only acting now. Sadly, because he, um, he was in the skin game that Hitchcock had made in 31, but he was also, he had been in Foreign Correspondent in 1940, which Hitchcock did. And then uh, after this, he did Trouble with Harry with Hitchcock. Yeah. And he's got a very distinct voice. He's an Englishman as well. Uh, I'm sure he did a lot of voiceover work as, like, or, or narrating stuff in the 50s. And at this point in his career, he was working because he needed to sadly just get money for it. He had really bad arthritis, so he needed yeah. he wanted to, to pay. retire, but he didn't wasn't financially able to. Yeah, so he had to keep working, and they were talking about when they were shooting this, when they were in the desert, him and uh, the girl who played his, uh, Patricia in the movie, uh, Joan Weldon, who's actually still alive, so God bless her, because she, she stopped acting in like the late 50s. She tells a story about how it was so hot out there, and they're in wool, you know, they're in wool suits, uh, that it was particularly hard for Edmund Gwynn and he wouldn't let anybody see him, but he'd have to be helped back to his car by his chauffeur because mm-hmm. the heat was playing up on his arthritis, so it was pretty bad. But as we just said, if you watch him in the movie, I don't think he's intentionally trying to upstage anybody, but he does a lot of bit of business, which is very funny. You know, a lot of stuff like when he's trying to talk on the, the uh, CB in the yeah, airport, yeah. Uh, the helicopter or with his goggles, trying to put him on right. It's just a lot of this quirkiness to show that he's not... You know, he's an old coot that doesn't really understand the new techno- technological ways, but it's, you know, he's, you could tell why he's the seasoned actor and he's really, you know. Yeah. Well, this movie was directed by a guy named Gordon Douglas who, if you look at his IMDb page, it's like a mile long. I mean, oh, he directed Jesus. all kinds of movies, all different types of movies and a million different movies. But up till that point, he was primarily known as a, 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 a comedic director. Yeah. Uh, so they, he went to the writers and asked them to put in... Some comedy. So a lot of the, a lot of like the kind of quirky things that uh, Gwen does in this is kind of at the uh, request of uh, uh, Gordon Douglas. And Gordon Douglas had he did uh, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye with James Cagney. So he didn't yeah. all just too hard, but he, he did Robin and the Seven Hoods in the sixties. Lovely, yeah, yeah. With Sinatra and the Rat Pack, uh, he did They Call Me Mr. Tibbs in nineteen seventy. Sequel to um, In the Heat of the Night. And he did, I think it might be his last movie, or at least one of his last movies in 1977, uh, 1977, Viva Knievel. Wow, long Evil Knievel. <laughs> That's funny. Starring Evil Knievel. You think about... Um, so you he know. has such a hit, like a crazy, like yeah. eclectic and I'm sure, And a lot of that is because in the, you know, when you get into the game at that time in the, the age of cinema, you, you're working, if you're a steady a- actor or director or whatever... You, every week or every month, you're on a new project. So oh, sure. I you're, mean, you're, especially so during the during the, the studio uh, system. The story, studio system. He you was know. a contract director, yeah. so he was working on nonstop. Yeah, he was working his pants off. And when he first got assigned to this, or he first 
came on board with this, he kind of didn't take it seriously. He didn't know how to approach the the movie, and then I think he got the angle around it. Maybe if you treat the material seriously, you know, and you 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 add the suspension, and we talk a lot, like you said, if you add the comedic moments in, which make people laugh, that also kind of ups the tension on the other side of the scale. So the like for me, the suspense in this movie was like really killer. The opening bit with the girl. And then as the movie progresses and you realize what the twist is about 28 yeah. minutes in. Well, the opening, it's like. It's very, fr- I mean, can you I mean, imagine it's, audiences it's at the like time seeing it? It's like textbook awesome, like, you know, like textbook, like this is a, this is like a great way to fucking open a movie. Yeah. Especially one where you're, the reveal is so outrageous. Yeah. You know, but to like, it's so intense to have like this, this image of this little girl like wandering through the desert great actress too i mean you know she looks like you know it's hard you you know everyone knows to get a good child actor that give a good part and she has a small role in the movie but yeah, she yeah. you have to get her to sell it yeah so you realize the she's gravity al- she's also the character that names the movie yes and that's that's freaky too so she's so she's in shock and it's so freaky to see her just at the beginning. She's so like, you know, messed up. You know, you can even have like, in if they did it nowadays, they probably have like blood all over her, you know? <laughs> you well, know? that's the thing. It's a very, it's a very modern opening, but. Yeah, realistic almost. But had it done, been done today, you're right. She'd be like her, like half naked and blood. Like you want to oh. like, what the hell? Like this yeah. is like, if it was done today, it's like a, I spit on your grave. Yeah. Type. It's like the opening scene. Of, remember the, that movie Arlington road with Jeff mm-hmm. Bridges and that the opening scene where the kid is walking down the road and he's bleeding out. Uh, it's very much like that. Like you start like, what the hell's happening? This little child's hurt, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it starts off in such a way. And then, so she looks great how she's, you know, in shock. And then, like you said, when they put her into the, the, the black and white, police car and they get her to wherever they are and they're looking at like her her parents trailer and you hear the noise of the ants in the distance and we don't know what they are yeah, yeah. and they, they just blame it off on the wind like the wind does weird things out here she you know it's great she she's heard it before she's in that it, she breaks she wakes up and she's like and then as soon as it goes away she, uh, she goes back so that's even more terrifying that she realizes what it is so there's all this tension and suspense that they create in this movie and like, in my opinion, they keep it the entire movie. Like, even near the end when they're, like, with the two kids and they find, like, the uh, motor, the, the, the toy plane, airplane, yeah. and they're like, they must be in there. I was like, oh, my God. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, like the kids are hurt, you know. Well, it's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting movie in that, you know, and it was interesting that you brought up this idea of, like, the police procedural because it really does, it's like a, it's almost, it's like a police mystery for the first, like, 20 minutes to a half an hour. But then even the rest of the movie, once they discover what it is that these giants, giant ants, and then they do this big uh, push to destroy the colony, but then it's discovered that some of them got out and that it's not over, then it is like this, it continues to be like this procedural like tracking them across the map. How will we do it? Yeah, very yeah, analytically. Like, there was witnesses of this here. Well, how far <laughs> can they go on the winds? Where yeah. would, what would there the be? The whole movie is very procedural, yeah. which is kind of, I mean, I don't know. I can't think of too many movies before this. I know that that kind of thing became, because of the success of this movie, there are other movies Especially well, in the sci-fi genre, that kind of mimicked that structure. You get um, but it, it's a. I think it's like a ballsy thing because it be, it's becomes very, um, not action driven. Yeah. It, but then you have these big set pieces where there's like action and craziness, but 
big chunks of the movie are just like following the suspect and trying to track where they went through very procedural things. And people Uh, were into that at the time, into the late 40s, like how everything got kind of serious with After the War. One of my favorite movies, uh, White Heat from 1950 with James Cagney, in the movie at one point they're trying to track him. So it's like versioning technology. What they do is they make a beacon, they put it under his car, and they have two other cop cars, or maybe three other cop cars, following him on adjacent streets and if that's giving off a, a, a beacon, they're able to then radio the coordinates of each other car. And then you have guys back at the police station mapping out on a big map where the cars are. And then they're able to use like a, you know, triangle pattern. And they're able <laughs> yeah, to, oh, yeah. here he is. He's moving up, you know, Sunset Boulevard. So you have that technology where we start seeing them using technology to go after uh, criminals, and especially like, yeah. you know, with the FBI and, uh, you know, post-World War II, you have, it was the OSS, the, um, and they become the CIA. And you have a lot of that. So this becomes into the 50s when you, you get out of the idea of the police becoming like the, the Keystone cop or the butt of a joke. And they become very serious. And they're like, just the facts, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. You get to see a lot of what they're using to, to, to fight crime or in these movies. Yeah. It's just like this movie you know, has a lot of like interviewing witnesses yeah and, and what did you really see and also i'm sure that's because of budgetary reasons they can't sure. have a lot of huge over-the-top stuff because of probably their budget but, but at the it, same time it's, wor- it's effective it, it, yeah i was just gonna say but it works i mean it's it works in the, at least in the context of this movie it's interesting because this idea of like the procedural and like a mystery and stuff it, like we said the success of this led to other movies in this genre trying to do the same thing but the difference you know, and, and you kind of cleared it up for me with uh, the research is that like it works in this movie because the su- like that it is a surprise that there are these giant ants. You know, it, there's a reveal, but they try to start, but they do it in other movies like the Black Scorpion in '57, Deadly Mantis in '57, and even going into the '70s with the Night of the Lepus. But. Uh, Although but those are like, rabbit, yeah, the, but, but like those are movies where it doesn't work quite as well because you know what the what it already yeah it's the, in the title yeah, <laughs> you know what, what, what you what you're getting Mantis. yeah or tarantula <laughs> in, in the you late know, 50s like, they're, but they're using the same like mystery formula uh, but they're like they're in those cases they're doing it but the audience already knows going into it what what's yeah. going on so like you're saying to take the idea of like an audience for the first time not knowing going in to see maybe it's on a double bill at a at a drive-in. Yeah, well, or I was maybe... wondering because like there are there are like the art for it looks authentic. I mean, it looks of the era. Yeah, and there's like giant ants on the on the poster. So I wonder if it's. But I also wonder second like run how, or something. Yeah, it could be second run or or maybe once the movie's out for a couple weeks, you, you put those lobby cards up in the theater. I don't know how. You know that'd be interesting when we when we compose the post and publish this cast. What we can find for original poster art, as opposed yeah. to just the iconic poster that we see there online, or if you buy the DVD, the DVD, yeah. you know, which is of the era, but it is giving away what what it is. I mean, uh, this movie was by Warner's, so Warner it had some uh, money behind it. And originally they were going to shoot this in 3D because right now we're in the 3D craze of the they 50s. They talked about doing it in color yeah. and also doing it in 3D. 3D. And then what happened was day one of shooting, they had 3D cameras there. The 3D cameras broke down and they lost a day of shooting because something malfunctioned. Yeah. I had so, also heard that they were going to run te- They were going to shoot tests. And that's what broke down? Both in color and in 3D. 
and maybe it was like the ants didn't they didn't like the way the ants looked in color. Yeah, and that the they couldn't get the three D rig to work. Yeah, but so uh, they shot. So the there's movie. a lot of conflicting things. So there's also uh, there's also conflicting stories that. There's a lot of lot of places you see call this the highest grossing movie the Warner Brothers had that year. Yeah, and then other but times, then other but then there's other sources that say that these two other movies were were, ahead were of made more money. So yeah. I mean, they say they technically shot their movie in 3D, as in they shot two camera like A and B cameras because you need for 3D you need like a pair of eyes, you need two cameras shooting it, and then you offset it. It's almost like a viewmaster, and that's how you get your 3D later on. Mm-hmm. But they say that that B camera either they never developed the film or the who knows what happened to that film. So yeah. so that there's a few 3D gags. Yeah, which survive left, which left is awesome. in the movie. Even yeah, you, though it wasn't in 3D. You get like the flamethrower into the camera, you get like, you know, the aliens or the alien, the ants coming towards you. Uh, there's so, if you're looking for 3D gags, you can see a couple of them, and then that is the reason why at the beginning the title card them is in blazing color, which is awesome, and it has a 3D kind of look with the red, yeah, and then behind like a drop it is shadow yeah, kinda. fucking awesome, you know. And um, so the last minute they decide to shoot it in black and white. It's supposed to be widescreen, but I don't even think they shoot it in widescreen. Like I mean, like uh, CinemaScope. 50s widescreen. I don't think they shoot it. Yeah, that was like it was gonna. They're gonna do color. They're gonna do 3D. Then they decided not to do color or 3D. So then they're gonna throw it, show it, shoot it in widescreen. And then they ended up not really shooting it widescreen. Yeah, and maybe maybe it's because of uh, budget or schedule or you know because they. They probably shot this movie in a, in a short amount of time. A lot of it is shot on location, which is good for. I mean, in the fifties, into the forties, into the fifties, you get a lot of stuff, of course, shot on location. A lot of these procedural movies are shot in L.A. or San Francisco, so it's fun to see that we're out in the desert for at the beginning of this. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, I don't think they shot it in New Mexico, but no. they did shoot it. It's not like a. It's not in like on a studio backlog. Yeah, I'm sure some of the close-ups are probably, yeah. or the interaction maybe with some of the ants are, and certainly when they get into like the. The, the ants' nest or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. you call it, their burrow, you know, that's all sets, of course. But And then when it wraps up, when, you're, when you get into L.A., and that gets all really uh, crazy. So I heard that they wanted, to, originally, they wanted to have the climactic scenes in this movie, which are in the sewers of L.A. Uh, they wanted it to be in the New York City subway system. But very quickly, they realized that it'd be too much money to replicate the subway system to have the giant ants invade. And then it horrified the uh, New York City Transportation Secretary, William J. Daly. He's like, no, we can't have this. So it, 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 I think they would be worried about, you know. So they quickly changed it. And L.A. had been brand new where we see in Chinatown with the, uh, the water like trenches. The aqueducts. Yeah, the aqueducts and like that kind of a thing. So uh, they ended up having the climax be there. And uh, we get a lot of cameos in the movie, too. You have the old man who tells them at the end of the movie, like, where the um, where he sees the flying ants. Because they found, like, they're trying to find, like, where these two queen males went off to. And uh, they're, they're interviewing everybody, and they found people who were arrested the night before. They were alcoholics. Yeah, so they interview yeah. these alcoholics. This one guy says, I saw the ants coming out of this. And what does he say? Like, uh, uh, make me a sergeant. Give me alcohol. Give, give me, me the, the booze. booze. Yeah. You know, I was saying that all night. Give, make me a sergeant. Give me the booze. <laughs> uh, that gentleman is the same guy who ends up being the old man in the original blob. Yeah, Olin Howlin. Yeah, he gets the, um, the, he's the old man with the dog that gets the blob first on his hand when he opens the... Uh, you know, the, whatever it is, the the uh, the yeah. w- w- what was it? The Geist? The, what was from the um from the gate? Oh, the geode. The geode. He opens the geode <laughs> and gets that. Um, you have Dub Taylor in this movie, 
Dub Taylor, people will know, uh, he's the uh, hotel manager in uh, The Getaway, the Steve McQueen movie, and he's also the, the taxi driver in Hazel, the TV show. He plays the rail yard watchman in this movie. Uh, you have Richard Deacon. He's the bald-headed reporter. He's in tons of 50s stuff. You have, um, we said Fess Parker. We have Jane, uh, Edmund Gwynn. We also have Leonard Nimoy cameos in this. Yeah. And he's kind of a relation, like we said, to the uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. He's unaccredited in the scene where... Um, they get the the uh, teletype of someone uh, witnessing. Oh, when the guy Fess Parker, that's when he gets that teletype. He gives mm-hmm. and he has some dialogue with the woman. So it's so crazy. You see, like a guy we know and love today, yeah, Leonard yeah. Nimoy, so far removed. In this movie, he's in a, he has like one or two speaking lines, and he's unaccredited in the movie. And there's so many guys in this movie who who are unaccredited that go on to do big. You know, sure. they're all kind of character actors. There's a the crazy time. episode of. Uh... Twilight Zone that has it's one of those things where you know yeah you know almost like the Vic Morrow uh, segment in the movie yeah but this idea of like switching places kind of to see the enemy's point of view you know and it's got uh, uh, Dean Stockwell is like the is like the lead of that episode and like one of the people in his platoon Oh, he's lettered anymore. And they switch and they become he becomes a Japanese. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and they get him like they put him in yellow face and yeah, all of a sudden yeah. he's like uh But there's like this young Leonard Nimoy is just like one of the guys in like his platoon. It's uh, And yeah, Dean Sakwa is like this real arrogant sergeant or whatever and he's going to blow up this cave full of Japanese soldiers that are hiding out and then so then all of a sudden he switches places and it's like, you know, so it's a morality tale and he he feels for them or whatever. Yeah, yeah. We get your you were just brought up um a couple months ago, maybe with Raiders, we, we, we gave the history of the Wilhelm scream. Yes. And there's like four <laughs> Wilhelm screams in this movie. There's a hell of a lot of Wilhelm screams. Because people, at the, I bet you the... the so if you don't, if you happen to not know what the Wilhelm scream is. Yeah. In our three and a half hour episode of, <laughs> of um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I, I go all into the history about of the Wilhelm scream. About distant drums. Where it's it, from. Yeah. Who did it. Who, who did it, it. Movies it's in. And uh, what f- it is. And, and, and I guess it, the first appearance, as you said, is 51. This is 54. So it must have been like a stock Warner yeah, sound. Yeah. So they're like, you know, we need a scream. Just use that scream that we have on the wall, taped yeah. to the wall. It's you know? used in here like three or four times. Yeah, when when um, poor, um, what's his face, Whitmore gets killed, when the radio operator. I mean, that's a freaky part, too, when they find one of the queens is hatched on a cargo ship, the USS Viking off the coast. And then they're trying to battle like ants on a ship during a storm. That's freaky to me. And, you know, it's so it's all. Uh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of Wilhelm screams in here too. Hell of a lot of Wilhelm screams. Um, this is shot like a semi-documentarian feel, like so. This this is what sure. we're, what we're talking about, how the realism of it, you know, and and, and of the era. So, uh, and this even inspired a video game in two thousand eight called Those. If anybody knows that video game about oh, and it's, it's I mean you've got uh, eight legged freaks has like homages. to Oh this, yes, yes, so. yes, and it was nominated for for best special effects an Oscar. It was nominated for best special effects. The the they were built the ants were built by the uh, like the effects supervisor uh, Ralph Ayers. Yes, and a prop guy named Dick Smith, but not the Dick Smith. Not our Dick Smith that we know and love. Um, but coincidentally, that this Dick Smith, them's Dick Smith, was also... <laughs> them's one, Dick Smith. One is also one of the guys that built the head of the fly in the fly a couple years later. Oh, wow. And it's, it's, 
I mean, it's funny because it goes back to almost our Blade Runner cast, where it's like, at the end of the day, these poor ants, all they want to do is just eat some sugar and be left alone, <laughs> you know? And we end up just destroying this, you know, but we have to, you know, it's, yeah, it's us yeah. or them, no pun intended. But you get in it, you know, or where... exclamation point. Yeah, and, and us, but you get in it where they, it's great for them to use the ants because they are, like they point out in the movie, the only other species on the planet, aside from us, who are uh, aggressors who who make war they have war campaigns they uh, capture um, uh, prisoners and they turn them into slaves so it, it is a really um, interesting idea to take these and have them be the center of the movie uh, and you think about it realistically you know if this were to really if those things were really to like spread and 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 breed thousands and millions of ants that would be a problem and you know very much like anything else they would probably eradicate humans very quickly uh yeah it's just it, all around it's a, it's such a fun movie everybody's chain smoking in the movie which i love <laughs> you know it's also interesting because you can totally see that maybe the intention even though we see james whitmore first yeah uh you can totally see that maybe like the intention was for james arnez to be like the leading strapping hero of this movie because well, he's the one who goes for patricia the girl yeah but james whitmore is so good in this movie that uh there are reports that when he dies in the movie that children in the audience cried yeah like, well because, you don't see it coming he he sacrifices himself to get those two kids out and it's so funny nowadays i would think they wouldn't even consider those kids still being alive i didn't think i would have thought that the kids would have been killed instantly and eaten and the father got away, but he died. So, but then they, they they're like, he, they may still be alive. We're gonna have to go search every inch of the sub sewer system. It's like really, yeah, yeah. You know, after the evidence we've seen, they're they're killing everything. But he really, but Whitmore yeah. really does kind of steal the show. He uh, does a lot of business too, if you notice upstage, and yeah. and, I, and I don't know if he's doing it on purpose. But I, he does I like, read that he did that he might that he kind of came up with these things to do. Yeah, to just it's to like draw attention away from Arnez. McQueen notoriously did that when they did the Magnificent Seven, where he was with. Um, Yul Brenner for a lot of the shots. So to, even though Yul Brenner was the star, McQueen would do stuff in the background, like he'd take the shotgun shells and like shake them near his ear like he can hear it. But he'd do all this stuff just in the shot to upstage Yul yeah, Brenner. And yeah. it's, it's an effective technique. And, you know, you have uh, Whitmore doing it a lot here. Uh, a shot worth mentioning because it's absolutely it's like fantastic and uh, horrifying is when, I guess it's when they're searching, I guess it's when they're searching for the hole to the colony. But then you see you mean like, in, the, in the helicopters, yeah, yeah, and you see like the ant sticking out of the hole with the rib cage in it. Oh yeah, <laughs> and and it, mandibles. Yeah, and, and it throws out, it spits out, <laughs> and then it rolls down, and you see there's like a bunch of bones there. <laughs> like, that is totally fucking horrifying. And then you see like the holster, and they're like, "There's your dead cop," <laughs> you know, and then there's your, you know, your your your, your the parents of the girl. Uh, a couple of trivial things that. Um, I don't know if I should try if I should try to give the uh, Latin fucking names of these things, but uh, you know they they name the the ant in it the like the Campanitus vicinus, uh, which is a carpenter ant that's known for uh, like breeding large ants, but the the ants in the actual that they're modeled after the ones that they actually look like actually resemble this whole other species of ant, which is more of a harvest ant. Um, that's like the, I'm going to, I'm going to give it, I'm going to go for it. Go for it. <laughs> Do it. Pogo no Myramex. Nice. Ant. So it's one of those weird trivial things where like they're called this one ant, but actually they resemble much more resemble this other ant. And then, uh, that chirping noise. They yes. Make, uh, 
which was seems to be a combination of sounds, uh, birds, uh, bird-voiced tree frogs mixed with uh, wood thrush, hooded warbler, and red-bellied woodpecker. Yeah, they take- all these different sounds combined to make that repetitive chirping sound and it, they, they, they recorded it like on location somewhere in the southeastern united states and it's terrifying when you hear that thing and you don't you know, i mean if you're imagine if you're in that situation <laughs> and you hear this thing just start going i mean it's really i mean it's effective you know it's almost like you know you it's like hearing a, a flying saucer go overhead yeah you know you start hearing this thing you're like what the fuck is that you know well, yeah well i mean it's a great device i mean we you know you talk about something like the jaws theme yes being like it let's cues the audience to know that shit's about to go that down. the shark is here it's the it's the it's the it takes the place of the shark when we don't see the shark the uh in yeah. friday the 13th that's jason when we don't see jason uh, this is using actual like diegetic sound effects to cue in the audience that something is near, but not revealing the hand too soon. You know, not showing your hand too soon. Uh, this chirping effect, which we in the beginning we don't even know what it is, but we talk about like the girl recognize it and it, it cues the audience to know like that's not good sound. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's it. I think it's so effective. I mean, this this movie has so much stuff going for it. I mean. Uh, I'm a I'm a fan of like you know the '50s army stuff, so I love that you know they, James Ones and all these guys just have Thompsons blaring away, they're just yeah, shooting yeah, the shit yeah. up. Plus, the flame like throwers that instantly become like military. Well, this guys. is that's another great thing too in these movies where it's just like for all intents purposes, Whitmore is just a beat state trooper, but as soon as he's into the journey, it's almost like they give him carte blanche to be part. <laughs> so he like leaves his he's fired his, off rocket launch. Yeah, he's shooting bazookas. <laughs> so since he dealt with him to begin with, it, it becomes this thing where like, oh yeah, we'll keep him to the end of this investigation. So yeah, he, like, yeah. he leaves his regular like uh, post at the state, the state trooper. He comes along. James Arnest, the same thing. And then, you know, and then at the end when they're like having these top secret briefings with all these military minds of what should we do? Arnett, uh, uh, Whitmore's in there. They're asking Whitmore's, um, you know. So I love the idea in the 50s that's like, you know, oh, you've been part of this since the beginning. You're going to come along and you'll be in all yeah, these yeah. meetings and stuff. Also, like the military and uh, all this seems, all this is often a kind of a recurring trope because we're coming off of a very patriotic World War Two, yeah, you know where it's like the troops, and you know we even have comic books, you know, all about the troops, and you know all the all of a sudden Batman and Superman are are are, are you know f- for the troops and kind of promoting them and this we idea war bonds and stuff in the yeah. 40s. So I mean, this idea of we're coming out of World War Two, where this is very patriotic, like for the military. So when we get into the fifties. It's like those are our heroes. Yeah, we're on their know? side in the sense of, and then you you get that fifties era of like you know army in green. Of course, <clears> it was the day <laughs> the, they stood still. The oh, military yeah, yeah, guys yeah. kind of screw up. The yeah, whole thing. He, he shot first, and yeah, they're like, "Fuck it, shoot!" <laughs> but for the most part, yeah, they were the ones coming in to defend the day. Where you have the army and the guys with bazookas and Thompsons and all that kind of thing. So you have very much that idea of you know the 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 army's going to save the day if they can and if they can't we're fucked yeah, yeah. kind of a uh, mentality in here um yeah it's just fun and then even you know it, even the ending you have that speech that that um uh what's his face edmund gwynn makes where he's like you know we're all going to be fucked sooner or later yeah, you know yeah. it's very much like you know it's it's the atomic since we're in the atomic age well, yeah we originally the, there's the idea i think the daughter presents 
early on in the film that this is a result of the first atomic bomb. Yeah. The radiation fallout, unknown Yeah, because Gwyn is very close saying, like, this isn't natural. Yeah. So this is the, the metamorphosis or the mutation of these ants was probably because... And it's funny because you think nowadays, if this happened now, you'd have... When they finally had that press conference... When they're like, you know, everyone has to stay indoors. There's a curfew and out. You know, you think the reporters would be like, well, how did this happen? They're like, well, we caused it. But that's beside the point. <laughs> you know what I mean? People would be all wanting to debate the morality of how, sure. you know, as opposed to back then. It's like, we don't have time for that. We need to get people inside because these ants are going to be yeah, killing yeah. people. So you know? at the end of the movie, it calls back. And I think it's Arnez says to the daughter, says, well, like, if this was the result of the first bomb, What's the of all the hundreds? I mean, we what are what are the what are what's the result of all the other bombs? I and forget what the statistic kind of pans is. up to Gwen and Gwen's. Yeah, he says that, that, that some last kind of monologue. Yeah, you like know. Like eloquent, like uh, yeah, we're all fucked with the atomic age, and who knows what else can be brought in. But we ended up blowing up. I mean, you know, the Russians and whoever else. But we blew up maybe a hundred or so bombs. I mean, you know, in that area, and then we tried to, you know, we were doing it. Uh, uh, you know, in the Bikini Islands, and then we realize uh, it, with radiation fallout in the wind, it's it's kind of not predicted where it goes. So then that's why we start doing underground testing. So we did underground testing until the 80s, until Reagan, and we kind of had the, the um, with the Russians, we had the, uh, the, the policies where we were kind of like trying to denuclearize our countries. So um, a, a little interesting a throwback to last week's episode, there is uh, Edmund Gwynn is in a 1931, uh, I'm sorry, 1933 movie called Friday the 13th, which has nothing to do with the Jason Voorhees series. <laughs> but it's interesting to think that he was starred in a movie called Friday the 13th from 1933, which is more of a, um, what do you call it, kind of like a, a whodunit or like a suspense kind of a thriller. So, uh, yeah, love this movie. Um, I don't try to think of anything else that we. There's a lot of cameos. Just, I would just say that it's an interesting movie. It's the fr- I think it's the, might be the first of like those giant bug type movies. Um, and I mean, most successful as well. I mean, I it's think. coming off of it's kind of a follow up of the same year of the the beast from two thousand twenty thousand fathoms. Yeah, which all that stuff was done by Harry Hauser. But instead of going that's another with, great movie if any, anyone hasn't seen that as well. But instead of doing it kind of uh, miniature style, they built these full-size ants. And I'll just say, like, for the movies of this era, um, it's interesting because you think about how an ant is something that kind of we all know what it looks like. So yeah. to create the giant-sized ants, uh, it's almost an easier thing than, than to trying make to... Make a monster? That's make scary. a monster. Trying to convince an audience that something's real that never existed. Like uh, an alien or something. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, a, it's an interesting movie. It's in effective. The, in the context of yeah. the other movies that are, you have these aliens. Because you take it for granted. And, yeah, and all these this, other t- devices they'll use for... You know, for the crazy the, things that, you know, towards the end of Invasion from Mars. Yeah, or, yeah, or, or War of the Worlds with those big, you know, ships and stuff. So it's, yeah. When you have it be something that's so common that you can go find in your backyard or in your basement and then have them, you know, it's enlarged to this. That's almost like the idea of uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man where as he starts shrinking, you start to realize the stuff around your house become, like, even your cat, well, you know, yeah, yeah. that kind of, well, that, you know. Yeah, hopefully we'll do that one yeah, at some point Richard Matheson is great. would be a really interesting yeah. podcast for us to talk about that and that, movie. that almost is against the Dr. Cyclops movie from 1940 where that's also all the shrinking stuff and the phobia you play against it. Another great movie, if you're into these, funny enough, like a horror ant kind of thing, there's a 
movie called Phase Four from 1974, uh, directed by Sal Bass, who uh, y- y- you were saying is a production designer, right? Or well, I think he or he's a, he's a graphic designer who did titles for a lot. I of I think stuff. he did a lot of the Hitchcock titles. He's known for the titles, but he's also given or takes a lot of credit for the shower sequence. And Psycho. Yeah, yeah, there's a great movie about uh, the scientists who are watching these ants, and these ants are developing intelligence very quickly, and it's a horror movie. And it's, uh, it's a forgotten one, but I'd seen it a couple years ago, and it's very good. And uh, so if you're into this, they're not, they're not giant ants, they're little yeah, ants, yeah. but it's very, well, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it goes, there's kind of like resurgence of that kind of stuff, like Squirm. Yeah. Uh, In by the Jeff 70s. Lieberman, and then, you know, a movie that uh, we saw together at a sleepover. Kingdom of Spiders. Yeah, Kingdom of Spiders with, 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 with William Shatner. Uh, a lot of those, yeah, when you get into the Irwin Allen disaster movies of the 70s, it very much went away from the uh, man-made disaster. like like Swarm. Yeah. You get, in, you get from going from like a building on fire or a ship toppling over to, to like nature, nature <laughs> earthquakes, and, you know, and then from plane to like, and yeah. I mean, then Jaws is kind of like the... The epitome of all yeah. the nature, like the, the uh, animals Man versus nature, yeah, kind of. coming coming out, and you get a lot of that fire or swarm, or you get a lot of that in the late seventies, the resurgence of out of this. And you're right, this started. This might be best represented, uh, represents, but this started that whole like Tarantula is another movie from the late fifties, mm-hmm. where at the end you have Eastwood as a cameo as one of the pilots that blows the Tarantula up. Um, but it's, you get a lot of those movies in the fifties that you made mention of that are, that are all kind of out of this. And it's a fun movie. Like you said, like a late midnight show, you know, like you, you catch it on TV and it's one of these things where it's, uh, they're so good. And this, you know, this era of, you know, people love horror from nowadays, but there is this forgotten era kind of, of, you see like this magic that was able to be done, which isn't really done anymore. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we talk about the gate and, uh, all kind, you know, there's so many instances we talk about how the fun of doing these movies is kind of the looking back at the special effects and the movie magic and how things were done and how, you know, it's a, it's a time capsule of filmmaking at yeah. that time. And this is another one of those kinds of movies. I mean, obviously, being 30 years ahead of most of the movies that we're doing, uh, the effects are more primitive. But to think that, like, you know these giant ants and stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's it's effects like at the height of 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 its of what they were capable of of that of that time. Yeah, and it, effective. I think even to this day, it's a lot of fun and yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. And everybody in it, you know, goes off to do other things. I mean, you know, uh, it's it's great to see like a cast where if you're well versed in. 50s, 60s, 70s episodic television, you'll recognize everybody. Yeah. You know, one of these, uh, a lot of character actors, including, like we said, Leonard Nimoy. So this is this was a really fun stroll down memory lane. Uh, a great era, a great, great fun time. We've got now, next week, we've got one more left. We have our, our Halloween-centric yeah. Halloween we'll cast. See. We're we're not totally decided on yeah. what we're gonna do for our for our last one of this uh, season. We're still uh, we have we have some ideas. Yeah, we have we have uh, we're going we have uh, uh, about two dozen movies. <laughs> We've narrowed it down to about twenty four movies. <laughs> yeah, that we're trying to figure out for the or a baker's dozen. So we got twenty six that we're trying to figure baker's out. Baker's two dozen. A baker's two dozen <laughs> that we're trying to figure out. But um, we hope you like what you've been hearing. You can check us out on. Twitter. We're on Facebook. We have our regular website where we have extras. Uh, give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. Um, you can email us at our direct website if you want to contact us and talk to us. We'd like to think of 
what you hear. I, I feel like I posed a question at the beginning. Oh, about our structure in Halloweens. If, if you guys like that, let us know. If you yeah. like us doing an older movie as well as like a Halloween-centric movie. And in case you've forgotten, I wrote a book called Scored to Death. I forgot about Conversations that. Conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. All about horror film music. Uh, Oddly enough, good reading this time of year. And that's, uh, that's available everywhere yes. you find books. So, so you go order it. Go check that out. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon. Don't you have a Kindle edition of it, too? There's a, kin- there's a, a Kindle edition. For people who don't like to read anymore? <laughs> well, you still have to read it. Oh, that's it. true. You're right. It's not, I was thinking it's a book to tape. It's not right. an audio book. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're going to have to. You just can't read that. You don't want to have the hard, uh, the real book anymore itself. So, uh, yeah, there's a very Pollyanna kind of look in this movie, but then it's a very dour ending. So let's hope, uh, you know, it's, let's try to keep our spirits high and not be as... Uh, as uh, negative with our, with the ending from this movie because we never know where we could be. So it's like they always say, look to the skies because... Well, this is where look, look to the... Look to the ground. Look to the ground. Instead of looking to the it could come anywhere. So um, you just keep yourself uh, keep yourself safe and, and watch those family members or pets because you don't know what's going to happen. Um, we'll be back next week. We'll be back next week with the finale of our... Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers Halloween <laughs> Extravaganza. Later. This is basic civil defense information from the Department of Defense, Office of Civil Defense, Washington. If you receive warning of an enemy attack, get to the nearest fallout shelter promptly. But if you're caught in the open and there's a brilliant nuclear flash in the distance, take cover immediately. Even miles away, you may be exposed within seconds to a searing heat wave from the explosion, followed by a blast wave and flying debris. Get into the nearest building immediately or into a ditch or culvert beneath a parked car behind a tree or a wall, anything solid that will give you some measure of protection. If an enemy nuclear attack ever occurs, many areas of the nation would be threatened by radioactive fallout. If there is public shelter nearby, go to it. Or if you have a home shelter, use it, unless your local government has given you other instructions. But if regular shelter isn't available, and you have a house with a below-ground basement or storm cellar, you could still improvise some protection from radioactive fallout. In a basement, choose a corner most below ground and away from windows. Drag in a heavy bench or table to make a roof for your shelter. Cover it with trunks, stacks of firewood, flagstones, books, anything that is thick and heavy. Then wall yourself in on the two open sides with heavy appliances or dressers or chests backed with earth or sand to help absorb radiation. For more information on this and other ways to improvise protection from fallout, check with your local civil defense office. If a nuclear attack ever occurs, go to a public shelter if one is nearby. Or if you have a home shelter, use it. But if regular shelter isn't available, and even if your home has no basement, you could still improvise some limited fallout protection in a first floor hall or room, away from outer walls and windows. Use doors off their hinges, furniture and appliances, plus stacks of other shielding material, such as trunks or drawers, filled with sand or earth, to make an enclosure large enough to live in for a short time. Some homes without basements have a crawl space between the first floor and the ground. Select the crawl space area under the center of the house and place shielding material around it. On the floor above, 
place other shielding material to provide additional protection for the shelter space. For more information on how to improvise fallout protection, check with your local civil defense director.